I'm Laura Gentry Williams, and you're listening to Adopting It Forward. Adopting It Forward allows people to share their adoption stories in order to encourage you wherever you are in your adoption marathon, from bystander to runner in training to participant. Enjoy today's story. Hey everyone, welcome back to the 2021 version of Adopting It Forward. See ya 2020. I hope all of you enjoyed a restful and safe Christmas with your family and that you're looking with cautious anticipation into the new year. We were so blessed to be able to see all of our kids and grands and hang out for a whole week together in one place. It was the best gift. We also celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary on the 21st of December, which is crazy since we're still in our 30s. I started a new Facebook group called Adopting It Forward, and I'd really love for you guys to join and comment on episodes, give some suggestions of people maybe that you'd like to hear interviewed, volunteer to be interviewed by me. I would love to hear from you guys and share it with your friends, invite them to join. You know, I just can't stress enough. I've told you guys over and over about our village that we have. We're so blessed with the different people who've adopted, our buddies. But community in the adoption realm is just so important. Parenting as a whole, we need our community for that. But I would just love for you guys to join, and I want to hear from you guys. We're not alone in this, everybody. So this brings me to the podcast. We're up to episode number 18. Episode one aired on September 1st, and now in just a few short months, we have listeners in 30 states and 11 countries and growing. It's just crazy. It blows my mind, which brings me to you guys listening right now. I've been told by multiple friends that they would really love to listen, but they can't figure out really how to do it. Podcasting, I guess, is still kind of new to a lot of people, so if you could do me a favor and help some people out. Maybe even go so far as to hold their phone and walk them through step-by-step. Download the podcast app. I use the Apple podcast app, but there's tons of them out there, and we're on all of them. Then show them how to search for Adopting It Forward and subscribe. Thank you, guys. Today's episode is with Jamie Richardson. Jamie and hubby Chris have adopted 13 mostly special needs children. This story is crazy, guys. You're not going to believe it. They did foster to adopt almost immediately after they were married. Jamie was an only child, and she just knew as a kid that she was called to adopt. We'll explore this call as well as the call to foster and the fact that they adopted a frozen embryo from in vitro and Jamie carried that baby to birth, and now they have their precious little baby. Little, He's not a baby anymore. He's five. But I just learned so much about that. That was fascinating to me. Warning, this episode was done in Texas, and Jamie lives in Indiana. So we did it on Zoom, and there was a lot happening. Stan edited a lot of it, but I, we left quite a bit in because I wanted you guys to feel it. Pretty much everyone I have asked to interview, 
They have had to rearrange all kinds of things, and it's been hard for us to finally connect, which I'm a seven, so I work really well in those conditions. I'm like, oh, it's fine. What, whatever. I'm last minute. I love it. But there was so much going on, and there's dogs barking. A kid comes in and out here and there, and we just left a lot of it in because we want you guys to feel like you feel at home and just connect with Jamie and her situation. She believes passionately in adoption. So she was laser focused, even when she had a kid like hanging on top of her at one point. (laughs) She was laser focused. She was talking passionately about foster to adopt and adoption. So buckle up. Here we go. Enjoy my conversation with Jamie. Well, hi, Jamie. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. Of course. So thankful that you're here. We started talking to each other, like, how long ago was it now? Probably a couple, a month or two ago. Something so like that. So we finally, I a know. lot of things happened in that time. So I know. Bless your heart. Well, everybody, when you guys hear all the things that Janie's doing, and like, I don't even know, but it's, <laughs> how do you have five minutes? Just tell a, a little bit about what you had to do just to sit down right now. What did you have to do? Well, we got a babysitter here um, to help my husband. I spent a little while prepping the kids, got them all to take a nap <laughs> so they'd be rested. And there's already one breaking in. There's already one breaking in that I gave a strict, please go out, sweetheart. I, I'm, I'm busy, baby. Go on out. Go ask daddy. Please go out. Please go out. I love you. And this is my life. Right. I mean, because... So I had even had everyone take a nap, even like the older kids, you know, so they wouldn't be as needy right now. And I've um, got a babysitter here to help my husband, prepped all the kids that they were not allowed to come in my room. And we didn't even get into the description. Right. Of life yeah, because we here we go. So, um, <laughs> well, anyone who's listening go. right now is like, yes, this is, I, this is what my life is. So yeah. And yeah. here I am. You're so cute. You're just like, yeah, this is fine. We can do this. Okay. I'm going to ask you in a different way. I usually ask people to introduce themselves. Let's, if you were introducing yourself to a friend, you know, someone you meet somewhere, how would you tell who you are and what you do? Well, so usually I just say, I'm, Hey, I'm Jamie, but then there's usually someone around who will be like, or there's usually a bunch of children around me, I guess. Like I'm generally not alone. So the questions are coming when you see all these children jumping up and down, being rowdy, and none of them match me. So, um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm Jamie, but we have a fairly large family through adoption. It's crazy, but also very normal to us. <laughs> you make um, it normal. Yeah, we have 13 kids. All 13 through adoption? All 13 through adoption. So we were foster parents. Um, we currently are Hoosiers. We live in Indiana, but I am from New York. And we were foster parents in New York for 10 years. So we fostered over 30 children over 10 years. So it's always interesting. Like right now, I have 13 living children that are Richardsons. But that number of how many kids I have is kind of fluctu- it fluctuates depending on, you know, exactly how I'm answering that question. How many children have I parented? Or, you know, I have some in heaven. And, you know, kind of how do you answer that? But I generally just go with 13 because that's the easiest to explain. So we were foster parents in New York. We've adopted seven children through foster care. 
and we finalized Zephaniah's adoption in 2017. And within a week, we were on a plane to China to adopt our twin girls from China. They have Down syndrome. And then six weeks later, we moved to Indiana after getting home from China with them. And then as we were driving to church one morning, my husband and I decided after we had newly moved to Indiana that we were done because we had never said we were done before. It was always like, oh, we just say yes. We both said, oh, we're done. And then the next day I got a phone call and agreed to adopt a child. (laughs) (laughs) And then had to call my husband and be like, Chris, this is the story. Remember that conversation? Yeah, remember that conversation we had on the way to church yesterday? It's now Monday morning. really a hard no, right? Right. And then I was just silent. I just told him the situation. I didn't tell him I had said yes. And I'm like, so Chris, blah, 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 blah. This happened. He's like, okay, well, you know, we need to say yes, right? I'm like, oh, well, good, because I already agreed to it. Oh, that led to adoption number 10. (laughs) Oh, my word. So your husband, Chris, so the Mm -hmm. two of you, how long have y'all been married? 15 years. Mm-hmm. And you've been in Indiana now, how long? Three years. We moved in 2017. Wow. So you've had the little girls for that long. So take me back a little bit. You guys in New York, You did you grow up there? I mean, is that where you're originally? So I'm from New York. Uh, my husband's from Connecticut. He moved to upstate New York for college. He went to RPI there. Um, he's an engineer. And we met in a young adults group at church. And a year after we got married, we started the foster care classes. We were young. I was 23 um, when we started foster care classes. And it was 23 when we got our first placement. So was your husband, he was working out of the home at that point? I mean, yeah, for the most part. I mean, it's only since COVID that my husband's been working from home. Hey, wow. So that is, uh, which is it's nice and it's definitely challenging for him because we have no extra bedrooms in this house because we have 13 children. So he uh, kind of is a nomad with his laptop. (laughs) He's like, Oh wait, it was quiet five minutes ago. And now it's not. Yes. We've given him a, he has a desk and a nook at the top of the stairs and the stairs is where timeout happens. (laughs) So So the kids are like, is he staying in timeout or. (laughs) Yeah. And and then like Like, the printer is on his desk. We homeschool most of the kids and the printer is on his desk. So he's constantly like chucking paper off the balcony (laughs) for us to like get it. So it's such a hot mess, but it's our life. So, um, so yeah. And then you're like, you know, he'll go into our bedroom, which is where I am now. It's the only place you can semi hide. And the kids will be like banging on the door that they need something. And he's in the middle of a Zoom meeting for work. And yeah. He's like, no, really? I need, I'm working. Like, yes. Yes. But they'll be like, oh, so-and-so's in the bathroom. I need your bathroom. And he's like, I'm working. So, anyway, I'm sure everyone else can relate to that. Right? So that was uh, Josephine's adoption came out of that when we were, no, we we're done adopting. And then in January, we adopted three children from Ukraine and brought two of them home in January. And one got stuck in Ukraine for months and he got home in April of this year. So your last one was this past April during COVID and everything. Mm -hmm. That's so great. So why did you start Foster so young at 23? What led you to that place? I was honestly very unsure if I'd be a good mom. So I'm an only child. I never babysat. I didn't really spend time around children or actually like children. (laughs) I really, my ideas, when Chris and I got married, I told him I would never be a stay-at-home mom. I would never homeschool. 
I specifically said I would never live in the Midwest. <laughs> so I'm a redhead. So like, I just kind of like will pop and I just say things. And my husband will always say when I say never, he's like, perfect. Now I know it'll happen. <laughs> so there all these things I would never do. I was going to be a career woman. I would like, I told him like maybe three or four kids. He always wanted a dozen. Um, but I would always work, you know, like that was my plan. But I was very unsure on how I would be as a mom. So I learned about foster care, but I, and I always wanted to adopt from a little girl, like really watching Annie and Oliver, which is not your best place to get a picture of adoption, but that's kind of what put it in my heart as a little child that I always wanted to adopt, but I was still unsure if I would be a good parent. So foster care seemed like an easy, put your toe in the water, which is funny looking back on it because it's, it's very different than traditional, I guess, parenting, but it was, I could try and I wasn't going to ruin a child for their whole life. It was, I'm taking care of a child for a period of time. And then I will learn if I was a good at being a mom or not, mm. and then go from there. But I immediately fell in love with my kiddos. And here I am with 13 children staying home, homeschooling them in Indiana. So, you know, <laughs> who knew there's some good parenting classes that happen with the foster system as well, right? Do they do some of that, some training? Yeah, there was a lot of training. So that was one of Chris and my jokes when we were foster parents. Like, we actually have a license to parent. Like, you guys don't, but we have a license right, right. to parent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, there is. I mean, there's a lot of books that you're supposed to read. And, you know, like, we went into it mm. at least very well read. <laughs> right. Well trained. And then life hits you. But, yeah, so we. What are you doing? Yeah. So, and we quickly went. We, our first placement was two children. So I was very there's been only a couple times for a few months here and there that I've had one child. There was, I had one child, I think for six months in all of our parenting journey, mm -hmm. but we had our first placement was two kids. And then two months later, David was born. So then we had three. So yeah, we've kind of always run family a little bit bigger. <laughs> a little bit. Okay. So we haven't shared this part of your story, but all of your children that you have adopted are special needs. Is that correct? Would you say um, all of them are? It's a spectrum. So when you're adopting kids through foster care in general, there's a level of trauma. There's some reason that they, they were brought into care. So my kiddos, we adopted through foster care. Some of them have more significant needs mm -hmm. than others, mm -hmm. but there is a general, like an emotional, social component to most of them. Even the ones that we got as babies, they had a prenatal trauma, I will say. So those are more of my emotional special need kiddos or my kids we adopted through foster care. The one I forgot to mention is my Isaac, we adopted as an embryo. So I was pregnant with Isaac. So really? Okay. So how did that yeah. go? So uh, if a family does IVF, to become pregnant. If you have had your children and then you are content with whatever number that is and you still have embryos in the freezer, a family needs to make a choice to either donate them to science, leave them frozen indefinitely, have them just destroyed, or you can make an adoption plan. And in 2012, when we did Isaac's embryo transfer, there were 600,000 embryos frozen in the U.S. alone. So I don't know what that current number is because I haven't looked it up, but it's a lot of lives. And the way my husband and I believe is that life starts at conception. Yeah. So that's a lot of uh, lives kind of in a limbo. They're not home with God, but they're also not alive on earth. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to eventually, so in this journey of foster care, I really wanted to experience pregnancy. We tried 
getting pregnant um, naturally, and that just didn't happen. I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, and we were unwilling, because of our belief system, to do IVF Mm. for ourselves. That's what we chose for ourselves, but we were really open to adopting an embryo that was already in the freezer. Mm. So we adopted Isaac. Well, actually, he, uh, there was a group of three embryos together, so three biological siblings, and Isaac implanted, and Isaac had been frozen for eight years before we put him in, so he is actually one of my oldest from conception, though he's one of my youngest in birth order. (laughs) So he's how old now? So that was... He's seven. Oh my goodness. He's seven. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there's that in there, but there's still, you know, there's still loss even in embryo adoption. Like I got to control his pregnancy. Mm. I got to nurse him for four years. Like I got all that control. Mm. But, you know, a couple of days ago um, when I was trying to take a bath, as we had talked about earlier, and this kid comes in and jumped in my bath. My kids are constantly doing that, jumping in the bath when I'm in there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's like where like they want to talk. So, <laughs> right. He was talking to me about the two other babies that were in my tummy with him, and he wanted to name them, and that he knows that one day when he dies, he'll meet them in heaven. Wow. So, um, So you have told him, when did you start talking to him about this situation? So my husband and I really believe strongly in kids knowing their birth story. Now, at an age-appropriate level, Mm. so you kind of like tailor it when they're a little bit younger but Isaac always knew he was a snowflake he was the baby that was in the freezer he was chosen you know he he always knew and his siblings knew so it was interesting one of my kids went to preschool when they were little and told (laughs) one of the teachers that their brother was in the freezer (laughs) oh my goodness and they're like that leads to some interesting conversation no I've Um, never met anyone who had adopted in this way I think that's that's a precious story what a great thing that you did for him and explaining it is pretty complicated. I mean, that's unusual. Yeah. But yeah, so he knows. And we've actually, within the last six months, his biological half-brother, we found him, or they found us, actually. So Isaac, that was part of his story. His other siblings, even the ones we adopted through foster care who have closed adoptions, they, because I was there when it wasn't closed, like I know their story and I've been able to share that with them. But Isaac knew the general that he was in a freezer and he knew like the profiles, but we didn't have any names mm. or real stories that I could share. Cause my, even my kids, you know, through foster care, I can tell them stories of their family of origin. So he's very excited that he has a brother that mm. he knows he's seen pictures of that hopefully after COVID they can get together at some point. Oh yeah. Oh, wow. Very unusual story. And that's, I love that. So you started your fostering journey. When did you have your first adoption? So we started fostering in 2007. We finalized our first adoption in 2010. Is that someone that you had been fostering or separate? We adopted two of our kids two weeks apart in 2010. So our um, now second oldest, Darius, was placed with us through foster care, but he was already freed for adoption. So we were matched with him. Um, So he came into our home a foster child, but we knew we'd be able to adopt him. Two weeks later, we adopted Alex, who we had had since three months old. And he was, he was two and a half at that time. So that was a, it was a process of him 
becoming freed for adoption and then us being allowed to adopt him. Mm. And then Enoch was born three days after Alex's adoption. And Enoch is um, Alex's full biological sibling. There are only two in the house that are actually biologically related. So yeah, 2010 was our first adoption. So since 2010, so in 10 years, we've adopted 13 kids. Oh my goodness. 10 years. And so when you're at this point, you've had them for 10 years, your kids, different ones. What would you say to someone who's starting? How do you know, like, okay, this, these kids, I'm fostering them. I want, I feel led to adopt these. What led you in that direction to like, now I'm, we're moving forward with adoption. So there's so many, I mean, there's 13 of them. So it's a different kind of story to each one of them. But in general, with foster care, the goal is reunification. But we had pretty much said that we would be that landing spot for kids if it was for a day or for forever. Mm. So there are certain ones of my kids that we adopted through foster care that immediately the first day I had the feelings and the commitment of you are my child and I will love you forever. And then there are other ones where it was the feelings weren't immediately there, but the choice was there. So we regularly tell our kids that love is not a feeling, it's a choice. So it's a commitment. Mm. So we committed to them when they walk through the door and then, you know, hopefully the feelings are there, but they might not always be there. And it's going to be the same. We've told them in their marriage, there's going to be times when you're married that you are just going to remember that you committed to your spouse or, you know, jobs, lots of things. There's lots of things in life where it's just, you've got to fall back on your commitment, not your feelings. Mm, So every one of our kiddos that kind of came to us that way, you know, if they came through the door, they were ours for however long they were there. And then, but some of them, you just like, I just saw a picture and I knew that was my child. So the twins, which are not biologically related. So we call them the twins, but my twins from China <laughs> are not biological twins. Oh, and I um, saw a picture of these two. And I mean, seriously, they are cute. Woo. They're adorable so little girls. So I was just scrolling on Facebook one day and saw pictures of them. And I just, and I, been on this Facebook group. So Reese's Rainbow, I'd been on Reese's Rainbow for a few years at that point, but it kind of just scrolled. Like it was just in my newsfeed. I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention. I had gotten on that Facebook group when I was in China a few years earlier, working on my master's in social work. And I had learned about it and was just looking around. Sorry. What, what is that for? So Reese's Rainbow is an organization that helps fundraise and bring awareness to children in other countries who are freed for adoption with special needs, only kids with special needs. The beginning focus with kids was kids with Down syndrome. And now it's not just kids with Down syndrome, Mm. but my twins do have Down syndrome. So anyway, I'd been on that Facebook group, just kind of like there. And every once in a while I would show my husband a picture or video and he's like, yeah, yeah. But this one night we saw a video of the girls and this little description about how they had been raised as twins in this orphanage and would soon be separated for adoption separately if a family couldn't be you know found that would adopt them together and i showed my husband and we prayed and within and then i started messaging with the agency and within a few hours we had signed a contract and committed to this you know 50 plus thousand dollar adoption just be like well god told us like it was one of those moments like 
we feel like God's really calling us to this. And we were up until three o'clock in the morning doing paperwork. Um, so that was like, just looking at them, like these are my daughters. Mm, adorable. And then our boys from Ukraine, well, and, and daughters, we have three from Ukraine. I saw them on Facebook, but that was more of a, I felt like God was telling us that our oldest Vladislav was our child. And my husband, it took him like three weeks. I think that was his biggest, his longest time to come on board with an adoption. It was three weeks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He um, was just really praying about it because committing to Vladislav was committing to a totally different lifestyle for us. Vladislav has cerebral palsy, was extremely malnourished. He was 11 kilos when we got to him at 16. Um, his body is twisted. He is bed bound. So it was just committing to a very different lifestyle, you know, not being up and on the go anymore. All right. Yes. I have seen the pictures. Say his name. Vladislav. We call him Vladi. Vladi. Okay. So Vladi, what, and as well as your little precious cuties from China, what happens to some of these kids if someone doesn't intervene? What happens? Death. I mean, it's the short, the short answer. Vladislav in particular, he was on the verge of death when we got to him. We got to him for our first visit because there's at least two trips or a very long extended trip when adopting from Ukraine. We got to him in December of 2019 and he had obviously active pneumonia. He couldn't even open his eyes to look at us. He was aspirating on every feed. I was trying to like gently kind of train the caregivers a little bit on how to do an NG tube feed slow enough, but he was just aspirating. Like he was on the verge of death right there in the orphanage. And I had two of my sons with me. My husband and I tried calling our church, getting a hold of someone from church, like one of the pastors. We couldn't get a hold of anyone. And we just did a child dedication right there in the orphanage before leaving him and just named him, like changed his name at that point and just kind of dedicated him to the Lord that just praying that he would survive until we got back. So he was literally on the verge of death. Our son, so we adopted three from Ukraine, Andre. He has a huge story, God's story, but he had been pulled out of an orphanage on the verge of death, like hours from death, three years earlier. And by God's grace was put into this amazing foster home situation that isn't normal in Ukraine. And we're still very close with his foster parents there. But, you know, otherwise, if someone hadn't intervened, he would have died. Dasha, our daughter, was very malnourished. She is blind and autistic and had um, a lot of GI issues. And it just had an emergency surgery, um, an appendectomy, and some of her large intestine removed a couple weeks before we got to Ukraine to pick her up. And if they, at the hospital, she was in, not in a good state at the hospital. The hospital was very rough, but we were told that they wouldn't have done anything if an American family wasn't coming. They would have let her die. So at this age in Ukraine, what happens? In Ukraine, the mentality towards disability is in general, there's obviously a whole generation of people learning the different, like that there is value in children and the church is starting to stand up in Ukraine. But the mentality is a very, you know, communist mindset of if you cannot produce, you do not have value. So if you have a disability, you can't produce, you can't contribute to society, therefore you do not have value. So families are encouraged when they give birth to a child that has a disability or the child appears to have a disability as they get older to send them off to the institution. And they're just warehouses. They're barely keeping the kids alive. Our Vladislav was getting about 200 calories a day. 
it was enough to barely keep him alive, to keep him in starvation, but not die. You've seen pictures of him. He was skeletal. You could see all of his bones. He looked like the pictures you see of concentration camp survivors. Yes, it was horrible. But then I saw the video of you like kissing him and he's laughing. And I mean, that was only a few months later, right? I mean, um, there was days later. There's one picture or one video on oh, uh, that we have that it's like two days after we got him out of the orphanage. And actually the poor thing, he was so um, deprived of human interaction one of those videos, like we're kissing him and he's getting so excited and has this big grin. And then pretty much when I stopped recording, he had a seizure. He was so over, like he was so deprived of human interaction. It was overstimulating. So then we had to kind of start letting the room be darker and like letting him gradually get used to human interaction because it was just making his epilepsy out of control, just being loved because he was so deprived of it. But, you know, Ukraine, it's easy to see. Like, it's just, it's not hidden, like the, as much like the abuse and the neglect, it's not hidden. In China, it all looks really nice and shiny when you get to the orphanage and pretty and super clean. And it takes a bit to see the situation. But at the time when we were bringing home the girls, the statistic was, this is an approximate, but it was like 50% of kids with Down syndrome died by the age of say 25. So there was like a really high number of kids and it was between like the 18 and 25. Like they were getting like okay care in the orphanage. Like, okay, not great. Okay. But then when they hit that adult window, then it was, there's something, not that many people with Down syndrome would die between 18 and 25. You know, it's not just a heart condition because that would have unfortunately taken them out younger. Right. Because when did, where do they go at, at a certain age as well? Um, so more typical kids in both countries are put out on the streets when they turn 18. If they have more significant disabilities, uh, they're going to be put into more adult institutions, but even with more neglect than before. And they're not going to make it very long. Right. Oh, that's so hard. So you've learned to do all these things with these special needs kids, right? So my Josephine, the baby that, you know, where Chris and I had said we weren't going to adopt anymore, and then number 10 came along. (laughs) Um, Josephine was my trainer in a lot of ways, and one of my sons who passed away years ago, Remy. But uh, Josie has schizencephaly, which for her means she's missing 50% of her brain. We were told at the hospital, a very prestigious hospital, when I went to go pick her up, a neurologist asked me while I'm looking at her brain scans, why would you adopt her? She's going to be in a lifelong vegetative state. And this is in the U.S., a very prestigious hospital in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And, but the neurologist kept looking at her brain scan and then looking over at Josie with Josie giggling and smiling. And like her brain scan didn't match the child, which could get me on a whole tangent of prenatal diagnoses and limitations and, you know, aborting children because of, quality of life. So whatever, but I won't go down that, but looking at Josie's brain scan, she should have been in a lifelong vegetative state. We constantly tell Josie she's no rutabaga. So she has a lot of limitations. She has full care, but she, she's the president of the house. She runs this place with all 13 kids. She's the youngest. She runs this, you know, she has, so she at one point was, had an NG tube and then we had a G tube place, which is gastro tube, like right through her tummy, like right to her stomach. 
but you know, through Josie's care, I had learned like how to drop an NG tube and how to manage that and reflux and how long, you know, a feed should take. And our son who passed away in 2015, Remy, he had an ostomy bag and a G tube and lots of respiratory issues. And um, so he had trained me on these things and, you know, they prepared me to get there and try to advocate for Vladi while he was being fed incorrectly. So, so you have some help, I'm guessing. What kind of help are you receiving with, and have you had to go out and get your own help and like hire nurses or how does, how has that gone? So I have three quarters of a master's in social work. I said, you know, God sent me to my graduate school, not to have a job, but to run my family. There you go. Um, <laughs> because I ended up, we went, when, as foster parents, we went from three kids to six kids overnight. And I literally could not keep up, keep up working and doing my master's and running the house. So that's when I stopped um, school. But that kind of prepared me to kind of run, run this circus. <laughs> so we do have nursing for three of my kids. Four of my kids qualify for in-home nursing, but because it's hard to find nursing coverage, three of my kids have it. So we have that. We have had au pairs live with us since we went up to six kids. So we've always had an au pair that, you know, we obviously are paying for and, and housing with us who helps us. So that becomes 40 to 45 hours of help in the home. And then there's things like waiver programs. Um, so here in Indiana, there are a few waiver programs that a couple of my kids qualify for mm-hmm. that provide in-home um, like aids or respite services, things like that. So on average, we have probably like five adults in the house during like the nine to five time or more. You went from being an only child to having your house filled with nurses and tons of kids, obviously. And they're, you're sharing with a lot of people. Has that been, a, I mean, I know you gradually did it, but there were parts where you just were like, this is all right. This is where we're living here. So I hated being an only child. I love the spoiled part. Like my mom still spoils me. Like Christmas, I look forward to my mom. Like I still ask her to fill my stocking. But I'm still a little girl. Because she's like the one who spoils me. So like in like the selfishy ways, I'm still an only child. Um, but still I still have your mama. That's good. Yeah. Thank God I still have my mama. But I hated being an only child. It was lonely. And I lived in a neighborhood where there weren't other kids. So I never wanted to have an only. I mean, I didn't want to have 13. <laughs> you didn't see that. You could see that. That's what, you know, God brought the baker's dozen, but, you know, I never <laughs> wanted an only. Hmm. So um, I don't mind it. I really don't. So we have 17 people live in my house hmm. because we have the au pair and one of our aides lives with us. And then we'll have three, if we are fully staffed, which, you know, staffing is what it is. If we're fully staffed, we have three nurses in the house during the day. And then my twins um, after school have an aide who comes and then there's therapists in and out of the house and those types of things. So the door is always, you know, opening at my house. Like we just tell everyone just walk in, just like raid the refrigerator, like just make yourself at home. Um, Pretty much because I don't have time to cater to you and I don't care. You're just one more body. We welcome you. You're part of the family. Eat the food change the toilet paper roll and just kind of jump in. I love that. A lot of people would say foster care. I can't do it because I have to let go of kids. 
-hmm. That is one of the biggest reasons I feel like I've heard not to foster. Have you had some experience with that where, yeah, this, I can't. I've heard that so many times and I, I hate it, especially when you hear it from someone who's a Christian. And this is me getting up on my pedestal a bit. The most sanctifying times in my life were in foster care. And it's not about you. Get off your high horse. And it's not about you. So yes, your heart's going to be broken. Mm. And if it's not, you're fostering wrong. And, uh, you know, how did the father feel while his son was dying on the cross? He had to give up his child. Mm. So just get over yourself. Like, <laughs> that's like, I should be softer about it, but I just, I don't, like, it drives me nuts. Sure. It is and, hard. And the reason you're in it is not for the thank yous. What are your thank yous that you would say that you receive from what you're doing? What are your thank yous? I mean, there were a lot of thank yous, but it's not like the kid doesn't, your child should not need to come. Thank you. Right. If you're in (laughs) it because you want your child to feel, Oh, I'm so lucky that I was adopted. (laughs) That is ridiculous because there would be no need for adoption or foster care in an unfallen world. It's because of sin that that child needs to be adopted. It would be best if I had no children. I mean, it would break my heart, but if all these kids I've adopted were able to stay in their family of origin, that would, what would be best for these kids. So this is like a second best. And you know, if, if, um, you know, Adam and Eve hadn't, hadn't sinned and we weren't in a fallen world, you know, that would be the best world, but that's not the reality of it. That's not the reality of our world. We're in a fallen world. Adoption only comes through pain. and Yeah. So my kids are not lucky. I am blessed. I am lucky. But my kids are not lucky. And nothing good comes without some pain. So if you want to live your like little middle class, upper middle class, whatever class it is, life where you have like your picket fence, your 2.5 bio kids, and you never have any struggle, go for it. But that's not being the church. Now, I'm not saying every person is called to adopt, but there are millions of people who are called to adopt who are not following their call with another number of orphans we have in the world. Mm. Oh, that's good. You know, there's a lot of people who are being disobedient to their call. And we're all called to do something in this way because, well, I'm sure you would say, and if you want to do some shout outs to people, but for us, everybody I've interviewed has told me like, oh, these people bring this, these people gave that, these people pray. And all the different things. Have you seen help that you yes. had? I mean, you are paying some people or there are people that are receiving compensation for it being in your home. But what about the other people? I mean, our church here has like brought meals. There are many people who have sent gifts to my kids and, you know, sent us checks and I mean, paid for these adoptions, like in and of ourselves, my husband and I, like he's, a, he's an engineer, like, He's well-educated and compensated for his expertise, but we're a one-income family of, with 13 kids. So we can support our kids, but, you know, when we adopted the three kids from Ukraine, it's tens of thousands of dollars. That was a few years after um, adopting Josie, that was tens of thousands of dollars, which was a, a year after adopting the twins, which was, you know, $50,000. So God has provided using his people to fund these adoptions and provide the support. 
And yeah, so I believe that there's a whole lot of people who should be doing foster care or adopting who are just in disobedience and finding excuses. I don't want to put my biological children through that. Mm. Why not? I mean, be, be educated, be informed, be trained going into it. Know how bad it could be. Mm. But if God's calling you to something, the what ifs aren't an excuse to not follow God's call. And you don't know if your child needs to go through that. If God put your biological child in your home and is calling you to adopt another child into your home, God has a purpose for you and for your biological child and for your adoptive child. Hey, I just went off on a tangent. I forgot what the original question was. <laughs> it's so true though. I love that you're saying that because it is hard to hear that sometimes, but I feel like so many people I've heard say that I could never do that. I could never. And it's like, well, it's a noble no, excuse. <laughs> I would, it would, I would love them too much. Oh, that's a nice excuse you're giving us because it makes the speaker sound like they're just so much more loving than everyone else that they just could not do it. No, you're selfish. You're being <laughs> selfish. And you know, if you're not called, called to it, there are many other ways to help. You know, if it transportation, if it's meals, if it's you know going and mowing the lawn. I mean, if I didn't have to pay somebody to mow my lawn, that would be a lot of savings. But, you know, you can't have a medically fragile kid inside Beauty and go out and mow the lawn, you know? And then someone just <laughs> snuck in. Hey, Zephaniah. Oh, my gosh. How cute is <laughs> Hey, cutie. Hi. Aw. Where the church can be called to be caring for the orphan and widow. Yes. And they're distressed because that's not a one-person call. It's a church-wide call. Yeah beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of what we do is, you know, just say yes, but you have gone out really looking. That's what's been so interesting because I honestly thought as this interview went that you would say different people came to you, but you have really gone looking. I love that. You've been looking at websites and like just searching out these kids. And that is just so precious. The show's called adopting it forward. How have you seen what God's done for us in your adoption stories? Oh gosh. I think when I was, I had mentioned this earlier, foster care was our most like sanctifying time. God growing my faith Mm. in my kids that I've, I had already adopted or if I'd given birth to a biological child, I could live under the pretense, false pretense, but of thinking I'm in control. Yeah. And that I have control of my life, especially, you know, in our privileged American society where in general, not always, but in general, people have security of housing, of medical care, of food, or there's at least a place to go. There's a shelter to go. There's a free clinic to go. There's somewhere mm. you can, in public education, you can think you're in control. In foster care, I had no control. It was just faith. Because mm. I didn't get to decide if the child I was caring for and loved dearly went home to a horrible situation mm. that or I that I believed was a horrible situation that I would never send them to. Mm. But the judges and the county workers had all that control. I had none. So I really just had to trust that God was in control and that God knew more than I did. And I just needed to live the day to day of trusting that as long as that child was under my roof, I was going to love them, care for them, pray for them. And then I was going to continue to pray for them after they left my home. Mm. 
So I think that that was probably our biggest faith building time. And when God's taught me the most about faith and obedience Mm. to him. And I would just think throughout that time, God would just bring scriptures to my mind of times where God sacrificed always generally going back to the cross, which is where we should go back to anyway. But you know what the father sacrificed with his own son. (laughs) 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 My five-year-old is making little faces. I know. (laughs) During all this. Um, But yeah, so like the father's sacrifice, which was so much more than anything I was sacrificing during that time. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting too because it's in the hard places that you were in that drew you closer. I've alluded to him, but my son, Remy, who passed away in 2015, we had been matched to adopt him. He was in Ohio. We were still living in New York. And we had been matched to adopt him in 2015, May. And then a few weeks later, um, and he already had a lot of medical complexities. We knew we would outlive him. Mm. Um, And he had his large intestine transverse a couple weeks after we had committed to adopt him. And was in the hospital and he should have died, but he didn't at that point. And we ended up, we found out that he had had this emergency surgery and we drove out to Cleveland and we were living with six kids at the time. We pretty much spent the summer 2015 living in a Ronald McDonald house to be close to him. His foster mom would drop him off at the hospital and not visit him the whole time he was at the hospital. And we would move out to Cleveland. My husband would work remotely. Uh, we'd care for him, be a part of his care. And then he would get released from the hospital. He was in and out all summer. So, and uh, this was an interstate um, foster care adoption. The county we were living in at the time was very small and was not, had never done an ICPC. So it took forever to get our clearance for him to come. He ended up dying of an asthma attack the day the ICPC went through in September, which was obviously heartbreaking because it was so frustrating. I mean, on all levels, we adored him, but like, I was so angry because a lot of it was negligence on the side of the social workers, not doing their job, not knowing their job. And then how did this, my kid die of an asthma attack? He was so medically complex. And that's the thing that he dies of. But through his death, uh, we were able to go out to Cleveland and plan his funeral. We were not allowed to be any part of any planning that cost money, but they would let me because it was the county didn't want me to spend more money than, you know, they were willing to pay. Like they wouldn't pay for a tombstone, anything like that. But they allowed me to dress him and find a minister. But through his death, all the county workers came. We um, found out about a church that would send a preacher to do his funeral. It ended up being Alistair Begg's church. I had no clue. Wow. Like someone had just given me a number to call and I called it and I just thought it was just any little church, but no, they like, God provided one of the biggest, you know, most famous churches in Cleveland Mm. to be the people who preached God's word and gave a message of salvation at my son's funeral. Wow. Where all these county workers had to come, his Mm. biological family came, foster families came, and it brought so much honor to my son and to the Lord through his death because the county workers were shocked that this orphan, this disabled orphan, like the biggest, most famous church in town sent one of their preachers. That's precious. Yeah. So even through that, like, these are like hard times, hard things, but God brought glory to himself and honor to my little boy 
Yeah. And what, in my mind, I would have obviously wanted Remy to live and come home, but God sent him truly home the day that he should have been coming to my house, but God knew better. And if it wasn't for Remy, I would have never had the confidence for Josie's special needs mm-hmm. and all that training of living in the hospital right. with him being sick or it just, it was a snowball. Mm-hmm. It was six months to the day after he died where we saw that video of my twins. Mm-hmm. And Zephaniah, who keeps interrupting, was born one month right ap- after Remy died. And if Remy hadn't passed, you know, we wouldn't have Zephaniah. And, you know, God is bigger than the hurt. But that's, you know, going back to the we couldn't deal with the pain we couldn't, you know, of foster care or the loss. Yes, you could. And you have no clue what God's going to bring you through that loss. Yeah. You're just walking each situation as it comes. Wow. Mm-hmm. So many things. So you have a bus. Where did you get the bus? <laughs> There's a place in Toledo <laughs> that sells used buses. They're the biggest used bus place in the U.S. So yeah, that, we call it the Kraken. I put had decals <laughs> put on it, so it looks like a big octopus is eating it up. But yeah, if I was gonna have to drive a bus, I was gonna drive something fun. Oh so, yeah, cool. I know yeah, it's got the Kraken. Well, and I've seen the picture. Like you're, you have some kids that need like things dropping down, and you've got all that going. Yeah, four of my kids use YouTube's. Wow. So and the bus has a lift and can has two spots for wheelchairs. Four of my kids use wheelchairs regularly. So, and do you go places very often? I mean, I know right now you probably can't do much. So our family, you know, we gained our three kids with the most disabilities in the middle of COVID. Like we got the two home from Ukraine at the end of January. And then we got Vladdy home on an evacuation flight from Ukraine in April. So we've done a few little trips, usually to like pick up a kid at a hospital where we put everyone in the bus. Or we've gone up to um, Kalamazoo, which is like two and a half hours from us for ice cream. That sounds random, but it's about as much as we can handle. Like after you've gotten everyone in the bus, it takes a long time. You're just going to drive for a while. Let's just go somewhere. We don't care. Let's get ice cream. Yeah, just drive. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We used to be much more active. And that is like our lifestyle has had to change. Taking out not just the number of kids, but the number of kids who need to be diapered and fed and all of that mm-hmm. it is much harder to go out and do things like the idea of a family vacation things like that so a lot of it is divide and conquer mm-hmm. so usually it's my husband honestly who stays home and I take out the more ambulatory kids in our minivan so our small our small van mm-hmm. and go for an adventure mm-hmm. um but yeah it is much harder to take us all out we're hoping and praying that Vladdy gets more stable so that it'll be easier for us to do trips, even if we just bring nursing along. Right. So with, with COVID, I know you, I mean, you've got kids that really, it's a little bit nerve wracking. Have you mm-hmm. had to kind of keep everybody around close and you've got all these nurses coming in? How is that? So when COVID's first, like, I guess, started i mean you know it's been going on for a while but when it became more serious and prevalent in the midwest was really a few weeks before vladdy got home Mm. so we just kind of closed down the house like school was already out here because i had a couple kids going to public school but most of them homeschooled Uh, my one son who was going to aba uh, for therapy he just started just stayed home and was doing it over the computer 
we went down to just one nurse in the house. So it was the same nurse every day, five days a week. So that just kind of, we expanded our bubble to include Jim and we really kept life very small. Uh, we had like outfitted one bedroom of the house for when Vladdy came home with, we put up like these sheets in the vents, like everything, because he was going to be flying across the country or across the world. And I was planning on just quarantining with him for two weeks, but then he ended up in the hospital, like in less than 48 hours of being home. Um, so yeah, we've kept our world small, but we've had so many hospitalizations this year. I mean, you have to go to the hospital. Like I have to go. Mm -hmm. And you wear your mask and you wear your gear and then, but you know, you have all these nurses coming in and out that are not socially distancing when you're in the hospital and all these doctors coming in and out and like, you just have to. And then it got to the point where I just needed nursing for everyone. Like I physically could not do it. Mm -hmm. I could not care for everyone with just one nurse coming in the house. Mm -hmm. So we've had, we've slowly been making our bubble bigger. We have one family in particular that we've just like, we're each other's bubble. Like, cause we can't, the mental health side of it, Right. Is hate it. We can't survive without our support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need that. So, yes, our, our bubble is small, but not as small as it was. We've had a few quarantines. No one in the family has gotten COVID, thankfully. We've had three quarantines for different things. but So, is there some piece of advice... I think you've said a little bit of this, but that you would give someone who's just getting started or interested really just don't be afraid, but be educated. Mm. So Chris and I were a little naive. I mean, I was 23. He was, I don't know, 27 when we started our foster care journey. And we pretty much had the mentality of support us or get out of the way, uh, which was hard for our family who had never experienced foster care or whatever, like our extended family. So going back, I would have been softer with my extended family, even if they were saying things that I didn't like or disagreed with. I should have been softer. We probably should have given them more resources. So there's going to be people in your bubble and people who you really care about who are going to be unsupportive. So, you know, try to find that middle ground of listening to them, not being discouraged from what God's calling you to do because you need to obey God's call, but, you know, try to provide them the resources and the knowledge so that they can feel more comfortable with it because it is a big change, but don't be afraid to say yes, but know you're going into something hard. And be like, it is going to be hard. Like sure. the idea, like you can get the picture of like, you know, the orphan Annie picture. Right. It's all going to be like, there's going to be, you know, your climax, but then everything's going to be perfect. No, it's right. hard. Right. Like it is hard, um, but it's worth it hard, but it's hard. I mean, it's, and it can be lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of need to have your crew of people around you who get it. And for me, that's been at times like through different adoptive mamas I found on Instagram and on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I found like the real life, you know, <laughs> friends, but there were times where like, I just didn't know people like us. Yeah. And in the move to the Midwest, like I had more of that in New York and then it took me a while to find like people who did our life here. Sure. But you need that support. Um, so find that, but don't let the hard make you turn your back on God's call. Mm. So no, I think that's good advice, especially for our extended family, because they're just trying to protect you. You know, mm-hmm. they, they don't want you to be, they don't want to see you go through hard places and everything. But like you said, the hard places make everything better, really, as hard yeah. as you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the heart is truly there. Like, it can be isolating. Like, just this morning, I was texting and having a pity party with a friend 
about how lonely like I'm feeling. And I think a lot of that is COVID too. Sure. I mean, we're all lonely, but it's just, it can be hard. Like, you know, with a family our size, who's going to invite us over for dinner anymore? Mm. I mean, we're intimidating. Like literally, I'm going to be pulling up in a bus. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You might want to, you know, think big. Yeah. So what is something low key that you make high key? So I would say the bubble bath thing, because I do try to do that, but my kids jump in. So that makes it not <laughs> as low key anymore, even when they get past the lock. Um, really, I think it's binge watching Netflix, which is so not like spiritual or you know, helpful to be. That's like my time. Like after the kids go to bed, I just like zone out for a good hour at least. And I should be up like doing dishes. Um, you know, I look at like other people's houses, you know, of course on Facebook or even like going to their houses and you see how perfect everything looks. And it's like, Oh, I wish mine, but no, like I'm just, I'm surviving here and I'm going to watch my Chuck or whatever my binge (laughs) of the moment is something where you don't have to think or decide. I don't need to think or take care of somebody or, and honestly, like I'm usually holding baby Josie and Zeph and I is usually asleep on my like feet. Like, you know, my relaxing time usually involves several children like around me asleep. And like, you know, doing a G2B and giving some meds or whatever, but that's about like, that's, that's it. It's just zoning out on Netflix in the evenings. And, uh, I don't think anybody's going to fault you for that, Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you for doing this. I know everybody's probably about to break down your door just to like get to you. So thank you for taking this time to do this. And I'm so thankful for what you're doing and these precious kids I have loved just looking at your life a little bit. Once you let me in, um, <laughs> our, our friend, um, we have a mutual friend, Judy Schoonover, who was on episode <laughs> 10. You can go back and listen to that because she has 11 bi- biological children. And then she has also adopted three more. And she's another one that's a student from Uganda as well. So, and I'm so thankful for her, but I just appreciate you and all that you're doing for these kids. When I looked, especially when I saw Vladdy, that all of them are just so cute. But when I saw the change in him, I am so thankful for you. And I'm thankful for the life that you're giving these precious kids. And I know you said all the things that they're not lucky, that you're lucky, but no, they are blessed because you care and you love them and you see them and their little hearts. And thank you for seeing these precious kids. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Wasn't that a great conversation with Jamie? I just appreciated her so much. I'm so inspired by her life, her convictions, the way she just tells it like it is and sacrifices so much of herself for her kids. The fact that there are 17 people living in her house and she has people coming in and out all the time, three nurses, aides, therapists, all those kind of things. And she just is like, oh, come on in, raid the fridge, whatever. Some of her specific kids stories, the story of Vladdy and the pictures on her website are just so gut-wrenching how frail and tiny he looked when he first came in and how happy and healthy he looks just, you know, not even a year later. The way she said about foster care, ooh, it was really convicting. The most sanctifying times in my life were through foster care. It's not about you. Um, I needed to hear that. It's not about me. 
And the way she said there would be no need for adoption or foster care in an unfallen world. So true. I want to leave you with her last quote that she said, If God's calling you to something, the what-ifs are not an excuse. Wow. We're starting the new year, everybody. And I don't know about you, but I usually try to set, I don't like to call them New Year's resolutions. I kind of try to set goals for myself. Physical goals, mental goals, spiritual goals. I'm reading Bob Goff's book, Dream Big. It is so good, guys. It's a great book to start the year with. My word for this year is the word hope. There's a lot of stuff going on out there, guys, that we can just lose our focus. For Why are we even here? What purpose do we have? And I challenge all my kids in my classes to set goals. And we talk about goal setting at the end of the year, the first couple weeks of the school year. What are your goals? Read more, exercise more, spend more time in scripture and prayer. Whatever your goals are for this year, I'd like to leave you with this verse. Let's don't be discouraged, guys, because in Romans 15, 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. All right, guys, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next week, let's all keep adopting it forward. Thank you so much for listening. Can you do me a huge favor? If you're enjoying the adoption stories, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode which drops every Wednesday. It would also really help if you could leave a positive review. Five stars if you've got them. Do you or someone you know have an adoption story to tell? please reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, or through our website at largeentrywilliams.org. You can also find our show notes there. Today's show was edited by Will Rice. The whole thing was put together by my favorite guy, Stan. The website, largeentrywilliams.org, is managed by Leslie Serrano. Unconditional love and occasional mischief provided by Golden Doodles, Gus and Coach. Thanks again for listening. Let's encourage each other as we are adopting it forward.